You're listening to Intelligent Data, a podcast by Proficient. Proficient is a global digital consultancy that's transforming how the world's biggest brands connect with customers and grow their businesses. Throughout this series, you'll learn how valuable data is today and how it can transform your business. And now here's our host, Arvind Morali, Data Chief Strategist and Principal at Proficient. I am super excited to have Doug Laney in the Intelligent Data Podcast today. He is an industry guru on data monetization and the recipient of Gartner's annual Thought Leadership Award three times and is regularly considered one of the top global influencers on these topics. We touched up on different monetization themes, including data marketplace, data governance, data ethics, and data literacy, amongst others. Doug brought clarity of topics, including data roles, such as data trustee and data curator, external versus internal marketplace, and inverted data monetization with some tangible examples. But wait, that's not all. He announced a surprise at the end, so make sure to listen all the way. I'm sure you will get a lot of takeaways here. It is my honor to have Doug Laney, best-selling author, thought leader, and overall authority in data monetization. Doug's book, Infonomics, has inspired me and many others to understand the concept of data as an asset and helped organizations to start this journey on measuring, managing, and monetizing data. Folks, make sure to listen all the way at the end of the podcast. Doug has a giveaway that he wants to announce at the end of the show. So, Doug, it's such a pleasure to have you in our Intelligent Data podcast. The pleasure is mine, Arvind. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Doug, would you mind giving us a background uh, about yourself? Well, I guess most recently, I spent the better part of the last decade and then a bit before that as well as an analyst with Gartner. Uh, For those not familiar with Gartner, it's the largest IT research and advisory firm. And I focused initially on big data because I guess I'm known as the guy who came up with the three V's of big data, the volume, velocity, and variety used to define big data. Wait a minute. You came up with the three V's of big data? Yeah, I'm the three V's guy. All right. Yeah, back in 2000 or so, yeah. It was interesting. We started hearing from clients that they were being challenged by data, but it wasn't just the size of data that due to e-commerce in particular, at the beginning of the millennium, organizations were trying to figure out how to handle the increasing volume of data and then also a variety of different data sources, customer data and product data and partner data and transaction data and, and even starting to receive data off of devices, which you know now we call IoT. And so we realized that the problem was not just unidimensional, but multidimensional and not only a challenge, but that there were opportunities to take advantage of higher velocity and higher variety data. And in fact, what we found is that volume wasn't the biggest issue when it came to big data. You know, all the database vendors wanted to talk about how they could handle, you know, terabytes and gigabytes of data. But the real challenge by two to one, uh, companies told us, was the variety of data. You know, you can scale your architecture and infrastructure to handle volume, but you can't just scale to handle a variety of new kinds of data sources. It's more of a manual architectural kind of effort. Now, since you've done all the analysis, um, meaning to get to the three V's and explain it to the world, I'm assuming organically you got into the data monetization discussion along the way? Yeah, eventually. We didn't really originally call it data monetization, but it was an effort to try to get our clients to do more than just build pretty pie charts and dashing dashboards, to do more with their data, to look at it and do more diagnostic and predictive and prescriptive kinds of analytics, not just basic hindsight oriented stuff. And while I was at Gartner, I started kind of collecting these stories. So the questions turned about 10 years ago or so to not not only how do we handle big data, but what do we do with it? I said, well, 
it sounds like these companies need examples of what organizations are doing with data. And so I started collecting stories of how organizations are generating value from data in innovative and different ways. And a dozen examples turned into 50 examples, turned into now I've got about six or 700 examples in my library. Every industry and geography, type of data, type of analytics, uh, even companies that are selling data or using data as collateral for loans. So we've got all sorts of interesting stories. And it occurred to me that, you know, I should probably publish them. <laughs> so my next book, you mentioned Infonomics, thank you. My next book is going to be a compendium of use cases of how organizations are using data and analytics in innovative and high value ways. And all of the stories are not, we built a pie chart or bar chart. They all have a measurable business benefits attached to them. And then when I started looking at the different ways that organizations are generating value from data, certain patterns started to emerge. And I call those the data monetization patterns. You know, you talk about data monetization and my definition of that is really any way that an organization is generating measurable economic benefits from their data. This is awesome. So talking about data monetization, data is the new oil. You've written, you know, articles about this. You've published an entire PowerPoint. So, Doug, here, here's my opinion, right? It's an economic generator, which kickstarted a lot of our positives as it relates to economy, right? Some people literally took it as a simile, and then they started going down the path of how data is or is not the new oil. What's your point of view? What's your stance on this? The metaphor definitely holds. It's the engine of the economy now. We, you know, we've shifted from an industrial to an information economy. Some organizations haven't caught up to that, particularly the accounting profession <laughs> still doesn't consider data to be a balance sheet asset. Maybe we can cover that a bit later. But the metaphor definitely holds. And there are a lot of similarities. Like, you, you know, you mine for or you extract oil from the ground. You extract data from systems. You process it. You refine it. You pipe it, you plumb it, you sell it, and you use it to drive a process of some kind. But I think what's most interesting is where that analogy fails and the unique economic characteristics of data that make it very different than oil. You know, when you consume a drop of oil, you can only consume it one way at a time. You can only consume it once and then it's gone. And then when you consume oil, it doesn't create more oil. But data is very different in that regard. Data is what economists would call a non-rivalrous, non-depleting, regenerative asset. That is, you can use it multiple ways simultaneously. You can use any data again and again, over and over, and it doesn't get used up. Typically, when we're using data, we're in a position to capture more data about whenever and wherever, however that data is used. So typically, the usage of data generates more data. So I think that the businesses that are really successful today are those that are capitalizing on those unique economic characteristics of data. I think there's a key here. What you're saying, as a data monetization guru, I think the story gels well. You mentioned the three characters of data, non-depleting, non-rivalrous, and regenerative asset. So when somebody says, I want to use data as an asset, are these the three, and let's say their objective is to monetize that asset. Do you look at these three characters? There's a lot of depth into this, the non-depleting, non-rivalrous, and regeneration, right? Do you look at these three as characters and deep dive into requirements of these? And is that how you come back with how can you, what are the ways to monetize your data? Is that a part of your assessment? 
Absolutely. When we run at West Monroe data monetization workshops, we run specific kinds of exercises to explore each of those characteristics and each of the patterns of data monetization to look for ideas. And in fact, in these workshops, we share dozens of these stories that I've compiled that we think might be relevant or adaptable to the business at hand. Those are the kinds of things that we're looking for. We're looking for ways to use data over and over again. And I guess that's kind of the crux of data monetization. We're looking at ways to use it in multiple ways simultaneously. A lot of companies and business people think about just using data to drive some kind of operational process and then to report on it. They really haven't thought broadly about the variety of ways that data can be used. And that's really something that we explore during those workshops. And at the end of those workshops, we typically generate 30 or 40 you know, unique ideas for new kinds of data products or ways to share or exchange data with partners or suppliers or throughout the broader business ecosystem to drive measurable business benefits. Then the trick is to assess them you know, and say, all right, well, which ones of these are you know, feasible from a, an ethical and legal standpoint? Are they feasible from a data quality standpoint, a technology and operational standpoint? And so that gets interesting. And in fact, we're now working with an investment bank who can come in and say, listen, we'll fund the exploration of your data, just like oil, right? We'll fund the exploration of an oil field. We'll look for value. And if we find it, we will develop that oil well or those data products and then pay the owner of that data residual. So it's a no risk opportunity for clients or companies to monetize their data without having to take any real risk or effort or expense at all. See, now we're having a lot of similarities on how, you know, oil can be mined or whatever the right word is. And how do you monetize that? How do you even explore that oil could be mined here, right? Companies spend millions of dollars on that process and they may or may not be successful in the journey. You're going down that same path as to how do we mine our organizational data and which one of those are monetizable or not, right? And then, of course, put a lot of ethics and policies on top of that to make sure that you're going down the right path. Yeah, very often in the workshops, we will invite key suppliers or partners or customers into those workshops to help us ideate. And then we'll get a good sense of what the demand would be or the use cases would be for those data products or custom analytics Makes sense. Doug, I want to deep dive a little bit on this data marketplace. Um, seems to be a big deal these days, and especially the foundation of the data marketplace is that concept of data as an asset. Of course, if I draw parallels to selling a car in a marketplace, in a dealership, right? Those are physical assets. It has a value tied to it. You're saying a lot about how you tie a value to a product, to the data products, right? What do you think about the future of data marketplace? What are the opportunities that organizations can think about? Right. So there's two ways to think about a data marketplace. There's one to think about a marketplace outside your organization, an independent marketplace. And then there are companies that are developing internal marketplaces to share data more broadly throughout the business. So they have kind of the same foundational components. But if you are building an external data marketplace, you're probably not doing it as a company yourself. You're using an existing data marketplace like DAOX or DMIST, or maybe entering into some kind of agreement with one of the preeminent data brokers like Eagle Alpha or Nielsen or IRI. That's more of an external data marketplace where you place your data in that marketplace and make it available either via an API or some pub sub kind of model. Companies more are taking the marketplace concept and implementing it internally. So I create a data catalog of the data. Here's how to access it. Here's what it means. Here's how to combine it. Here are examples of use cases and things not to do you know, with the data and then make that available. So you know, a lot of the data governance vendors like Calibra and, and others you know, will help to set up that kind of marketplace for organizations. 
Makes sense. So just to reiterate what you said, internal marketplace caters to the employees of the organization who are looking for a certain set of data. And these capabilities like the catalogs will enable them to search for the appropriate ones. And then given the permissions and everything else, now they can go and explore what to do with it. And maybe not only just the employees, but perhaps some closely held partners or suppliers as well. Right. So that's where the data sharing comes along, right? You bucket that within your internal. External is interesting to me. So that example, what you just gave, where I would love to share my information if I'm a part of a supply chain ecosystem, as an example, right? The manufacturer has to share with the distributor, has to share with the end customer. This is the ecosystem. So when you think about data sharing, how does that work in the supply chain? Where does external versus internal differentiators fit in here? It's really a matter of permissions. So it doesn't need to be much more complex than that. If you have a marketplace that can handle, one, can handle permissions and two, handle transactions in the case where you're expecting some kind of monetary something in return for sharing the data, then you can use the same kind of technology and and platform. Do you see this more like a blockchain of data where, you know, I build a centralized database of sorts with a unique identifier, which doesn't change at all. And then that will represent a skew that some manufacturer is manufacturing. And then it'll go through the pipeline. Yeah, I didn't want to get too technical, but yeah, a lot of the marketplaces that are out there today leverage blockchain in that way. Right, right. Makes sense. Given that data is so important and valuable, what's the role of data governance? I mean, it's it's an age-old capability. Has it changed? Has it become more agile and nimble? Or is it very bureaucratic, at least in your experience? It can be bureaucratic and it can be something that you're asking your business people to be involved in. Oh, I got to sign up for data governance now. Do you see a lot of that with the business people? Yeah, yeah. So the business people, they're starting to understand that data is a business asset, not an IT asset, and that they need to be stewards of it. But on top of their day jobs, to be stewards of data is can be a lot to ask. And so this is where a lot of data governance efforts kind of go awry by not giving people the time, resources, the latitude to steward the data the way that they need to as part of an overall data governance effort. I think a couple of the guidelines that I have on data governance are one, well, one, I don't even like the term too much governance. It's got that word government, you know, in it. And so I like, you know, data assurance or data information advocacy or something like that is a little bit better. I also don't like the term data owner. I think that's one of the worst terms that we ever came up with as data management professionals. And as I started, when I was writing Infonomics, I looked at the way that other assets are managed and how can we apply some of those asset management concepts to data. And in doing so, I came across the concept of a trustee when I was looking at financial asset management. And I really like that concept because it holds the same kind of responsibilities and accountabilities that a data owner has, but it's more formalized and doesn't carry the baggage of the word owner, which kind of speaks to hoarding and data silos. And so I'm strongly encourage our clients to get away from that term data ownership and move toward data trustees or even uh, the state of New York kind of took me up on this idea and they've introduced the concept of a data fiduciary, which I mentioned in Infonomics as well. Sure. Yeah. And so what you're saying is the names might be a lot more cooler, you know, like the data trustee and a lot more sound, but the fundamentals of data governance has not changed. Yeah, I would say the fundamentals, it's a bit expanded to look at external data as well. So we were talking about external data and a lot of companies are bringing in external data assets, especially you know in this age of, of COVID where everybody's forecasts are broken, especially if your forecasts are only looking at your historical sales 
it's like staring at your own navel, right, to try to figure out what's going on in the, in the world. So I wrote about this in Forbes on how organizations need to really need to quickly shift from trend-based models to driver-based models where they're looking for external indicators of what's driving their business. And that involves identifying external data assets, which most companies don't have anybody responsible for. You know, they've got an entire department responsible for purchasing office supplies, but don't have anyone responsible for curating or acquiring data supplies. And in the data age, that's a big misstep, I think, for organizations. So from a governance standpoint, having somebody who can do that and ensure that that data is governed and used properly internally, according to the terms of the contract from who you are acquiring that data is, is really important as well. Right. And I think this is where, that's a good analogy, by the way, everybody tracks what happens in your office building, but data, which is way more valuable than your physical assets, nobody wants to keep track of where is it? How are we using it? Who is that data trustee, as you said? One throat to choke, one hand to shake, if you will. <laughs> I was working with a utility company and helping them with their data strategy. And I'm looking through their draft of it. And I say, you know, there's nothing in here about inventorying your data, you know, cataloging and inventorying what data you have. And they said, well, yeah, you know, we're a, we're a utility and we, we inventory our trucks and our transformers and our generators. And I said, well, if you really want to treat data as an asset, like it says in the first line of your data strategy document, then you might want to apply that same kind of discipline. And they, you know, they nodded gratuitously. Anyway, after the meeting, I go into the men's room and I see that they've inventory tagged all of the urinals and toilets and sinks. <laughs> to your point, right? We tend to be focusing on asset management for assets that don't really... <laughs> Physical the, assets the, versus data is more of a digital construct, right? And why? Because they're balance sheet assets, right? Assets that the accounting profession has recognized as important to the balance sheet, whereas data is still not on the balance sheet. Right. Honestly, my concern in all of this with the data marketplace and data monetization is data privacy and security, right? You should definitely consider that on top of your parameters. What do you see, especially in industries like healthcare, which is now, you know, the trifecta of healthcare, the life sciences, payer and provider, if they have to have some kind of a shared marketplace model where they have the non-PHI uh, HIPAA compliant data to be shared, even if it's aggregated, have you seen those concerns? And if so, what do you do to address those concerns? Yeah, there's a few things we can do to, to address the concerns. One is, you know, ensure that your partners are, are also beholden to the regulations, right? And if, especially if they're a covered entity in the healthcare space. The other things that we've seen become real popular are, we all know about encrypting data, right? And obviously that's a core part of, of privacy and security, but it makes data, you know, perhaps not that usable. <laughs> and so we started to see the rise of synthetic data creating data sets that represent the actual data set, even down to the detail level, but don't actually include any real data. But from a statistical standpoint, they're perfectly valid. So these are not aggregated. You're talking about granular level, patient level data, but they're made up. They take real data and dither it. So they'll change the, maybe the zip code a little bit. They'll change the birthday by a little bit. They'll change you know dollar and numerical amounts by a little bit, but retain the overall statistical the integrity, it allows you to analyze what's going on within a po any population at any level of detail, but not see actual customer records, right? Though the other way, in a, a lot of clients have come to me and they said, well, you know, we can't monetize our, our customer data because, you know, privacy regulations, you know, GDPR and the California Privacy Act and so forth. And I said, well, you're just not thinking innovatively enough. Flip that model on its head. You know, you can't share your customer data with me, but you can share information about my products and services 
with your customers. For example, I work with a, a hospital that said, yeah, we, we can't share our customer data. There's all these vendors out there that want to get access to our customer data. And I said, well, change the model. Flip it upside down. I call this inverted data monetization and say, listen, we know who our diabetes patients are and we can't sell that data or give that data to anyone, but we can introduce those patients to your products if you have a healthy meal plan or gym memberships or at-home glucose monitoring you know, test kits. We can make those available information about those products and services available to our customers and take a cut of that action if we want, right? We can take a commission on it. This is a very interesting value proposition. If you think about how, you know, life science companies, the pharma companies are having sales reps going and selling medicine or, you know, the approved FDA products to doctors, doctors can flip it in the head and say, hey, you know what? We know our patients. And if we believe that a particular drug is applicable for a patient with a particular, you know, symptom, if you will, we're okay to give them that, but give us a cut in the action. So this is literally, you know, monetization off the asset from the life sciences perspective. It's just, I call it inverted data monetization. Same thing with banks. Let's say there's a bank that doesn't offer insurance products. You know, they offer passbook savings and all sorts of investments, but they don't offer insurance. Now they can work with an insurance company. The insurance company can say, we want to offer auto insurance to your customers who have teenage kids who are about to start driving. Great. We can mine our customer data and find out who those people are. We can't share that with you, but we can share information about your insurance products with them and take a commission on it. You know, this is kind of like what Facebook does. Facebook doesn't sell data, at least <laughs> any, anymore, right? But they sell access to their customers or users. And so they figured out this model long ago, and it's not terribly difficult to do. It just takes a little bit of creativity. And, and I, you know, arguably, it's not something that many businesses have a core competency in. And so that's why they come to us to, to get involved. Companies like Amazon can make a living out of this. I'm sure they are already. So that begs me to ask another issue that might pop up. With all these companies having so much data in their hand about customer, data is the queen and king. It used to be content is king, but now I'm flipping that. Content is a part of data, right? What happens to the ethics? I've heard that in one of the digital surveys, 81% of the executives agree that digital data is evaluated and probably the biggest risk is ethics in using them. Yeah, ultimately the risk is reputational, right? And ethics is kind of that larger sphere around the legalities and regulations of using data. And the challenge with ethics is that we all as individuals have a different ethical thresholds. So where do you set that ethical threshold when you're considering a way to you know, monetize or, or leverage data? Do you set it somewhere in the middle of where your customers or clients are? Do you set it at one end or the other? And then it differs by culture and geography as well. So if you're a multinational company, you're going to find very different ethical thresholds in general in Asia than you do in the US and different in Europe than you do in, in North America. So companies need to be very circumspect and aware and intentional about that. And it really takes some thinking about what are all the ways that this data could be misused? <laughs> and, and, you know, you need a red team in addition to your blue team or to think through this stuff. And again, that's a way that you know, we get involved at West Monroe with our clients is you know, we're thinking about doing this thing with our data and we help them think through or even research all the ways that that can go sideways. And then what that reputational risk is. And, and we can even measure the reputational risk or the, the, the impact of that risk on share price and revenue streams. So it can be done. It's just a company needs to determine what that risk is and whether they're willing to take that risk, you know, what that risk reward balance is. Yeah, model is. And, and what you're essentially saying is go Google Facebook data privacy scandals 
you'll get enough information for you to start with. And, you know, to take that with a grain of salt, run that by your organization and see, you know, what are all the things that could go wrong to your point. But some organizations go a little bit too far with being conservative about ethics. I bank with one of the largest banks in the world through a series of, of acquisitions. And we moved recently, put our house on the market. It goes into the MLS database here in the US. And so it's basically public record. And then everybody starts contacting you. If you ever moved recently, you get contacted by these fly-by-night mortgage companies and real estate brokers and painters and moving box companies and everybody. But the only company that didn't contact us was our own bank. <laughs> like, like what, what a missed opportunity, right? Because when's the number one time when people change banks is when they move or when they get you know married or divorced. And so it's an entirely missed opportunity for one of these largest banks in the world to retain the relationship with me by saying, hey, can we introduce you to your new branch? Can we print you new checks? Can we schedule a time for you to move this stuff in your safe deposit box? Can we offer you a, a mortgage or a home equity line? An entire missed opportunity. They didn't even know we had moved until after we had moved. And I'm thinking, you know, how hard would it have been for them to hire some high school programmer, give them a can of Red Bull and say, match the MLS database to our customer list and spit out who's moving so we can engage them and retain them. And so when I mentioned this to some banks, they said, well, you know, that could be seen as kind of creepy and, and whatever. And I'm like, there's a friggin' sign in my yard that says I'm moving. You know, how creepy is it to reach out to me and say, hey, can we help you? And this is the bank that you've been banking with for a long time. 40 plus years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. I think this is a good combination of data monetization versus inverted data monetization, because in this case, they're reaching to a B2C, a business reaching to you, the individual. But if you can apply the same formula with a B2B and you do the inverted data monetization, right? Yeah, exactly. That's the next level. Hey, we know this guy is moving and his family's moving. Let's introduce them to moving companies and box companies and any other kinds of services that you might need when you when you move into a new home, like painters or whatever. I asked the same question of a CIO of a, a major paint brand. I'm not going to mention who it is. He goes, well, yeah, we want to get to customers. You know, we want to know when they need to paint. I said, when do people need to paint? When they move, right? Before they move or after they move. So are you looking in the MLS database to find out who's moving and drop off flyers at their homes or f figure out some way to reach them? Oh, no, that's a good idea. <laughs> you're leading me to my next big topic. I understand everything you're saying because I'm in this space. Now, put yourself in the shoes of a non-technical people who don't understand data. Literacy becomes an important part of this discussion. So there is a lot here. I mean, if you're a non-technical person working in that bank, you're telling me a lot of things that I don't even know what it is. So how do you educate them in that process? You know, how do you talk about something like data procurement or, uh, you know, this whole data supply chain, if you will, right? Right. At some level, I think business people today need to understand that data supply chain and need to understand the data architecture at a high level. Not only to understand where data is and how it flows, but also appreciate the challenges. You know, anytime we introduce a new system or an upgrade to our ERP system or whatever, what are going to be the challenges and the impact downstream and upstream from that change? And that it's not going to be easy. This data plumbing stuff is really, really hard. So business people need to appreciate that, but they also need to appreciate the opportunities of using data in ways beyond just for operational purposes and simple tabular pie chart reporting. And that's where all these examples come in to inspire or, or shame business executives into doing more with their data. I believe you talked about a role called data curator in your book quite a bit. I mentioned that a little bit earlier as well, that somebody who is responsible for identifying external data assets or even internal data assets that might be usable in new and innovative ways. Some people call it a data librarian. 
I think it's different than a data harvester. I think data harvester is more of a technical role. But yeah, somebody who's aware, I mean, there are 10 million estimated data sets published by government organizations worldwide. There's like 5,000 data brokers out there. Any company has hundreds of business partners and suppliers who can exchange data with. There are billions of websites that you can harvest data from. You can scrape and harvest data from. And you've got nobody in your organization who is aware of these sources or how to get access to them. That's an incredible misstep by any company today. I kind of feel that the other piece that is missing, you know, obviously everything you're saying are facts, like the 10 million data sets and 5,000 data brokers, but there's also the human part of it. Now, you just told me that you bank with this bank for 40 plus years, and then they missed an opportunity when you moved. That's the human aspect, right? The empathy, the design thinking that comes from a lot of our friends doing the digital transformation work. And essentially, they've created a whole design thinking around empathy. Walk a mile on their shoes, just as a person, a normal person who's doing business with the organization, and see what happens to their daily lives and kind of equate that to your organization. And how can I opportunistically go after that market, right? What kind of events do people go through? What are their typical milestones, like having kids and, and raising kids and kids start driving and kids start banking? And, you know, our kid became old enough to have his own bank account and, and checking account and credit cards, and nobody reached out to him. It's scary and interesting at the same time. Yeah, so it's a real missed opportunity. So I think so many companies are just like heads down trying to execute their existing business model better that they don't really think about how to transform with data. Absolutely. We touched up a lot on data ethics, data literacy, data monetization. What happens to a chief data officer? Where do they fit in in all of this? What's the role of a CDO? I've long advocated for you know, this concept of data as a distinct asset. And I think there was a time back in the 1970s and 80s and maybe 90s where it made sense where data and technology were tightly coupled. And there really wasn't any way around that. Today, we've got separate databases, databases in the cloud and processes here and, and there. And, and decoupling of data and applications is almost complete. Yet companies still manage it as IT as one thing. And uh, I think it's a terrible mistake in, in the data economy or information age. One, to consider data as an IT asset, or two, consider the management of IT as a single entity. And I think it's high time that companies bifurcate their IT organizations into separate I and T organizations where they manage data or information and technology distinctly. And we've seen some companies do that. Even uh, There's even a bank you know, out there that has done that. They've separated their technology and information groups into separate divisions. And so what's needed then is an executive to oversee the data side of that and you know, chief information officers have acted as if they were chief infrastructure officers for the most part for decades. And information was just kind of this annoying <laughs> little resource, right? Pain in the rear side for CIOs, the chief infrastructure officers. So I'm actually predicting either a big change to the role of the CIO or the complete bifurcation of that role into separate, you know, like a CTO and CDO roles, which I've, I've seen in, at a pharmaceutical company and in government and, and elsewhere where they've done this. They say, listen, we're sick and tired of firing CIOs every couple of years. <laughs> so we now have somebody to manage technology and someone to manage our data assets. And that's working really, really well. So thought leaders like Bill Schmarzo are talking about this new evolution called CDAO, I believe, Chief Data and Analytics Officer. Yeah, I think for smaller organizations, you can kind of combine data and analytics, but I'm, I'm not particularly keen on that. Yeah, I understand where they're coming from and you know, maybe you don't want to introduce more chiefs, but I, I'm neither here nor there on that. And, and yeah, so some CDOs actually manage analytics even without the A in their title. 
I think Bill has been advocating for something like a chief data monetization officer. And I think that's a little bit hairy, too many chiefs. So that should be the role of the chief data officer. And and the chief data officer should have someone on his or her team that is in charge of developing new data-driven value streams. Basically, the offense side of the CDO's role. Most CDOs, and maybe you've heard like Tom Davenport talk about this, uh, the, the offense versus the defense side of the CDO role. And so that data monetization is really the offense side. And then the defense side are the things we talked about, the privacy and security and governance and so forth. So underneath the CDO, you're going to have those two major functions, I, I would say. But I've been running an ongoing study for a while. We actually found that companies that have CDOs really benefit in some interesting ways. Uh, actually, interesting, nearly twice as often mentioned the importance of data and analytics in their annual report. And C-level CDOs, those who are actually you know at a, at a C-level, those organizations are four times more uh, often to say they're using data to transform their business. I, I have to agree with that. I've, I've seen that in action many times over and over. And those with a CIO responsible for data assets and not a CDO are only half as likely to be doing advanced analytics. So some interesting stuff like this. Companies with CDOs are three times more likely to be sharing data freely among business units. They're seven times more likely to be generating external monetary value from their data. And interestingly, we talk about valuing data as well. Organizations with a C-level CDO are three to four times more likely to be formally valuing their data assets, even though the accountants tell them they don't have to. Absolutely. And I understand that you're now literally preaching this with your Carnegie Mellon course, the C Chief Data Officer course. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, so it's a slimmed down version of the Infonomics MBA course that I teach at University of Illinois Business School which is also available on Coursera. And so that Infonomics course goes into how to manage and monetize and measure data as an actual corporate asset. And so we'll be doing a mini version of that as one of the classes within Carnegie Mellon's CDO bootcamp. Oh, gotcha. Okay, so it's a bootcamp. It's not a full-fledged course like your uh, University of Illinois. Correct. You know, it's more of an executive education course. The one through University of Illinois is a accredited MBA course. Now, I was doing some research about you and noticed that you're working with the World Economic Forum for a common purpose initiative, data for common purpose initiative, DCPI. What is it and what do you do there? We talked about marketplaces earlier, right? And so the idea there is to define everything around a marketplace, not necessarily technically, but what are all the components of a data exchange kind of marketplace from data governance up through and including how to handle transactions and how to value the data. So I'm part of the thread that is involved in the data valuation part of it. So anyone who wants to put their data up in a marketplace or data exchange has to determine what they want in exchange for that data. And so that's a evaluation exercise. So because I wrote and researched and developed models on how to quantify the value of data, they involved me in this project. Got it. So are you creating some kind of a template or framework like how White House started creating the AI ethics kind of coursework and then publishing them to all organizations? Exactly. I'll be part of the team that's publishing. uh, We'll probably publish initially a, a paper. We've outlined it so far on setting up a data exchange with a focus on determining value. And uh, I'm not sure when that paper is going to be out, but I expect it sometime this year. Yeah, we'll put a link on some of the work effort that came up from WEF uh, when I was uh, researching. But if there's a paper that's coming out very soon, yeah, happy to put that in our show notes as well. I think the main focus is going to be the establishment of kind of public-private relationships between government organizations and private enterprise to share data more freely. And so we're already working with national governments on what this framework looks like. That is fantastic. Looking forward to that. 
Now, you touched up a little bit on this earlier. You're publishing a new book, a compendium of all your data monetization use cases. Is that because you have so much good examples and you want to show it to the world so they can build some templates off of it? My goal with Infonomics is to get companies to do more with their data. And you know, the core of the challenge is that because they don't measure their data, you know, it goes back to you can't manage what you don't measure. And because companies don't measure their data, they don't manage it like a real asset. Anything you're not truly managing well is something that you're not going to be able to leverage or monetize well. So for many companies, that's kind of a vicious cycle of not measuring and therefore not managing and therefore not monetizing their data well. So the idea behind Infonomics is to kind of reverse that curse. You know, it kind of all starts with a vision. You're really not going to do anything until you've established a vision for what you want to do with data. And so having these use cases can help with establishing that, that vision and get companies to start moving forward and think more innovatively about their data and how to generate value from it. Yeah, so that's what the book is. And, and so I sort of cheated um, writing this book, <laughs> which is I found all these existing use cases published by vendors and consultancies and magazines and, and, and everywhere. So I've compiled them into this book. And then I, I cheated again by saying, you know, I could write an analysis on each of these stories, but that would be boring if it was just me writing the analysis. So I've got a lot of friends, you know, in the industry, a lot of experts that I know, like I mentioned Tom Davenport and John Ladley and my colleagues at West Monroe. So I divvied out each of these stories to 100 different experts around the world to provide a commentary and expert analysis on. So it's going to be a really interesting book with a real world use case each use case having actual measurable business benefits, and then an expert commentary by someone. I am so looking forward to that. Doug, we're coming towards the tail end of this. This is such an exciting space to be on. Are you ready for a quick lightning round of a couple of personal questions? Oh, uh, personal questions. All right. <laughs> All right. You can say, I don't remember. That's fine. What are a couple of your favorite books? And it can't be the books you wrote or podcasts. Oh, goodness. Hold on. Let me, let me turn around here. Data Crush by Chris Serdak is really, really fun, cool read. Data Governance by John Ladley. By the way, it doesn't have to be data books. It can be some mystery thriller books too. <laughs> All right, we'll get there. We'll get there in a second. God, there's so many, so many great books. Information Governance by uh, Robert Smallwood is, is fantastic. There's a new book I just read on storytelling with data. There's so many great books out there. Favorite books I've read recently. So Born to Run was really interesting. Uh, my son turned me on to it, and it's the story of ultra marathoners and the story of this hidden tribe in Mexico that all they do is run, and they run 300, 400 miles a weekend sometimes. What? A weekend? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my. How they've been discovered, and ultimately, this guy who wrote the book sets up a race between top ultra marathoners around the world and this tribe called the Tarahumara in Mexico. Really, really cool book. Also, Bill Browder's book, Red Notice, I finally got around to reading. He helped companies in the Eastern Bloc privatize and then got into uh, really hot water with uh, some of the Russian oligarchs. It's a great biographical read. You know your books. We will definitely put this in show notes. I'm going to probably make sure that I have all of these captured. So thank you, Doug. Did you do anything special or different during the COVID lockdown days? This can be, you know, I'm learning guitar, but something along those lines. My wife and I are still trying to teach ourselves every two-person card game. And we discovered some really, really interesting ones. I can't remember the names of them, but we, we did that. And we love to cook as well. And we love to travel. And since we can't travel, and we've been watching travelogues, and then we watch the travelogues while we eat a meal that we prepared from that region. So we did a complete English tea. We did a, an Italian dinner. We did a Swiss dinner. And I also got myself a Wii 
a Nintendo Wii. <laughs> How's that going? That's a lot of fun. So we used to have one when my kid was young. And uh, so I was like, I, I want to get one since we're going to be holed up here. And so I can you know play Wii Sports Resort and golf and tennis and, and stuff. So it kept me a, <laughs> a little active. That's fantastic. Hey, you know, I, I promise to our listeners that you'll have some kind of giveaway at the end of the show. Ah, right. So, well, I can't give away the new book just yet, but the existing book, Infonomics, which is a, a bestseller in CIO's magazine's must-read book of the year. Happy to give away uh, some copies of that. So anyone who wants to reach out to me over LinkedIn, anyone who wants to connect with me, say they listen to your podcast and wants to get, get into a raffle for the book, I'll be giving away uh, like a half dozen copies of them. That is fantastic. We'll put that in the show notes as well, that Doug's giving a half a dozen copies of his bestseller. I highly recommend it. Infonomics, it literally changed my ways of thinking and data monetization. And there's a, a treasure trove of information out there. That's very kind of you, Arvin. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure and an honor to have you in our show. Is there anything else you'd like to say to our listeners, uh, especially data executives who are trying to start this journey or in this journey? Oh, well, the pleasure is mine. I would say that we need to be focusing more on the cultural aspects, I think, in an organization to do more with data. I find that data literacy is a big inhibitor and that it is a subset of overall change management. So I would like to see IT and data executives focus a little bit more on the change management and data literacy aspects and if they really want to be successful in their organizations. Folks, this is not even a one-time thing. You can listen to Doug's uh, speech all over YouTube, LinkedIn, uh, everywhere else. So he's got a lot of fantastic advice for y'all. So Doug, thank you so much for being in the show. You are a true thought leader, author, consultant, coach, teacher, mentor. Again, I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you and thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I really enjoy your podcast, by the way. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for that. All right. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to Intelligent Data with Arvind Morali. Subscribe to our podcast to make sure you don't miss a single episode. You can find this season along with show notes at Perficient.com or listen to this series on top podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Spotify, or Amazon.